Hey, everybody. Come on over here. It's the Northern Miner Podcast. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast, episode 107. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner, and we have a terrific uh, show for you lined up this week. Uh, last week, we were in uh, Quebec talking about the Plan Nord, and uh, we had a little diversion with a uh, Ukrainian episode, and this week, we're heading up to the northwest corner of BC with a, a panel session from our Canadian Mining Symposium talking about recent successes in the Golden Triangle, particularly from a point of view of infrastructure and First Nations relations. This was a panel sponsored by the British Columbia government at our Canadian Mining Symposium. The entire two days of material from the Canadian Mining Symposium, those are investor presentations uh, sponsored, as well as um, these roundtable discussions, as well as the featured interviews, That's all available on our YouTube channel now. At the same time, we still have some excellent material there, so I'm going to keep using that in the podcast, but I'll be a little more uh, strict in my editing and just go for the highlights. And if uh, you find that interesting, then you can go to our YouTube channel and listen to the whole panel. This podcast is sponsored by the Yukon Mining Alliance. That's a group of 17 companies that are exploring, developing, and mining in the Yukon. And you can go to their website at yukonminingalliance.ca for more information, as well as follow them on Twitter at at investyukon, all one word. And some latest news out of the uh, members there is White Gold. They've announced a $10 million private placement of flow-through shares. That's being led by Claris Securities and GMP Securities. One note here is that Agnico Eagle Mines and Kinross they are both going to maintain their 19.9% interest in the company with the financing. And you know, the CEO of White Gold is David Donofrio, but one of the big names there, of course, with White Gold is Sean Ryan. He's their chief technical advisor, credited with kicking off the whole uh, Yukon Gold Rush 2.0. Our second sponsor is the Grasso Group out of Vancouver, led by entrepreneur Joe Grasso. The Grasso Group has three publicly traded companies, mostly focused on Argentina, and they are Blue Sky Uranium, Golden Arrow Resources, and Argentina Lithium and Energy. And you can find more information about them at grassogroup.com. And some news out of Blue Sky Uranium. They are uh, announcing a non-brokered private placement of up to 90 million units at 14 cents per unit for gross proceeds of $2.7 million. And they say that current shareholders have expressed interest to acquire a significant majority of this financing. With each unit, there's a common share and a warrant, and the warrant's priced at 30 cents uh, for two years. And they say the proceeds will go to exploration on the company's projects in Argentina and for general working capital. And we'll return with a uh, roundup of commodity prices and some bigger uh, commodity news after this break.
Let's take a quick run through metal prices. The precious metals have been uh, kind of going sideways the last few weeks. We have gold at 1293, silver at 1638, platinum 902, palladium 998, and rhodium at 2100. Most of the base metals have been a little bit of quiet too. We have copper at 312 a pound, uh, aluminum holding steady at 103 a pound, zinc at $1.41, lead at $1.10, and things get a little more exciting here in nickel. Nickel is at $6.99 a pound. The charts look terrific here for nickel. I would say chart of the week for nickel. 30-day nickel is just a nice straight line up from uh, 620-ish to almost seven, and then uh, six six-month nickel, you have the price rising from $5 almost to 7 and then the one-year nickel, you've got the price rising in a straight line from $4 to almost 7 So uh, looks pretty good with nickel, and I, I guess a lot of that's being driven by the EV market. The other major metal that's looking pretty good these days is uranium. The spot price for uranium oxide is at $22.75 per pound, U308, and that's up uh, about 10% over the last um, six weeks, six, seven weeks or so. Some of the biggest news in the base metals are the tariffs being imposed by the Trump administration. Uh, Canada and the U.S. had had uh, an exemption from the tariffs. This is um, 10% on aluminum production and 25% on steel production. Uh, of course, widely reported, so I won't go deeply into it. There'll now be uh, countermeasures imposed. The oil market has cooled down quite a bit, thank goodness. You can see it at the pump already. Uh, you've got oil dropping to its lowest level in more than a month amid surging U.S. output and signs that OPEC and Russia may ease their production. Uh, in the U.S., you had had unprecedented U.S. production and transportation bottlenecks at the biggest American oil field, and uh, that brought down West Texas Intermediate uh, futures to below 66 a barrel. And of course, the biggest news in Canada was the federal government buying out the Kinder Morgan uh, pipeline in the West. It's just a complete policy uh, incoherence there. And I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about that in the weeks and years to come. I thought this was a good uh, report put out by Moody's Investor Service. They had a look at Met Coal prices in North America, and they say their Met Coal prices. Uh, support a stable outlook, but secular decline still looms for thermal coal. They say that abundant natural gas supplies represent a continued headwind for coal, but producers have greater discipline in production levels to effectively match domestic and export demand. And they note that their conditions vary, as they always have, by the coal basin. They say that the Powder River Basin producers, such as Cloud Peak Energy, are the most vulnerable to falling demand given the distance from eastern coal-fired utilities. The northern Appalachia producers, such as Console Energy and Conchura Energy, can market their coal to both thermal and metallurgical customers. And Illinois Basin producers, such as Alliance Resources, will be the strongest during the 2018-2019 period, with low-cost production and access to Gulf Coast ports for seaborne thermal markets where pricing is strengthened. Now I've saved the best for last. This is the biggest news in the diamond industry in years, I would say since the blood diamond controversy. This is De Beers Group is going full on with their new brand of laboratory-grown diamond jewelry. And they announced this on May 29th. And they have this new company. Uh, of course, they've been working in the background for 
many years on this, and the new company is called Lightbox Jewelry. They will be offering laboratory-grown diamonds through Lightbox, and they call this high-quality fashion jewelry at lower prices than existing lab-grown diamond offerings. So they're going to undercut massively the uh, growing, um, so to speak, uh, laboratory-grown diamond jewelers that are you know, sl- slowly eating into their business. They're going to retail them kind of openly. They have a prices already given here. They have $200 U.S. for a quarter carat stone and $800 for a one carat stone. So that's that's a terrific psychological one carat stone, uh, well below $1,000. So I think that's uh, very interesting. They're going to start with three colors, pink, blue, and white. Here's a quote from Bruce Cleaver. He's the CEO of De Beers Group. He says... Lightbox will transform the lab-grown diamond sector by offering consumers a lab-grown product that they have told us they want but aren't getting. Affordable fashion jewelry that may not be forever, but is perfect for right now. (laughs) I'm sure they tested that one. Our extensive research tells us this is how consumers regard lab-grown diamonds, as a fun, pretty product that shouldn't cost that much. So we see an opportunity here that's been missed by lab-grown diamond producers. Steve Coe has been set up as the general manager of Lightbox Jewelry. They also say they will introduce more designs and colors as the range evolves. Lightbox is going to launch in the U.S. and will first be available to U.S.-based consumers through the Lightbox e-commerce website. They will introduce retail partnerships uh, farther down the road. Lightbox will be the only jewelry brand to source lab-grown diamonds from the De Beers Group's Element 6 business, which has been uh, in this for over 50 years. They will also be carrying a permanent Lightbox logo inside the stone, etched on there, I suppose with the laser. A widely reported number, they will be investing a total of $94 million U.S. over four years in a new Element 6 production facility near Portland, Oregon, which will add to Element 6's existing U.K.-based facilities. They say that once operational, this new plant will be capable of producing upwards of 500,000 rough carats of lab-grown diamonds a year. We had a quote here from Paul Zimniski. He's an independent diamond analyst talking to the National. He says, I think it completely changes the current lab-created industry. With De Beers' steep price undercutting and marketing influence, it will be very difficult for the existing players to continue without a very strong brand or special jewelry design. Now, the, the global diamond industry is worth about $80 billion, and this, uh, these lab-grown diamonds now account for about 10% of global sales, and it's marching steadily towards uh, 20%. So we're talking to an $8 to $16 billion business. So this is a fascinating development for the diamond industry, and my goodness, it is perfect timing because uh, next Monday, or on Jan- June 11th, we're going to have a Diamonds in Canada symposium in Toronto, We'll have Ira and Grant Thomas there, as well as Matt Manson and Paul Zimniski. So we're going to get into these issues uh, in depth in that, and then we'll report on them uh, through the paper and the podcast. And let's just take a break, and when we return, we will come back with the panel on the Golden Triangle in B.C., especially with the focus on First Nations and infrastructure.
And to introduce our panelists, I will introduce our staff reporter, Mr. Richard Corisa. Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome to the BC Mining Panel. Before we get going, I want to introduce our lovely set of panelists. At the far end of the table, we have Charlie Gregg, the VP of Exploration with GT Gold. Next to him, we have Chad Norman Day, who is in his uh, second term as president of the Taltan Central Government. To his left, we have Dave Nishkaliska, the Deputy Minister of the British Columbia Government. Moving down the line, we have Corinne McKay, the Secretary-Treasurer of the Nishka Lissom's Government. And finally, last but not least, we have Walter Coles, the President and CEO of Skeena Resources. So thank you guys for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here. To get things going, I want to go to Dave as the representative of the BC government. What is new about the approach of the government right now to mining and then in a broader context to relations between industry and First Nations? Since that's, since that's really what we're all here to talk about, um, what's new about your approach going forward? I would say with regards to what's new, I would say not a lot. I think what you're seeing is the continuation of a lot of support that's been evident for a long time in British Columbia. I think what is new is we're out talking about it and, and talking about what's happening in BC. And, and the focus you know, for us here today is the Golden Triangle area with the companies that we're here with and the, and the First Nations we're up here with. But I think what we really wanted to do is show up here in, in London today and start to to talk about the message that is the kind of stability and regulatory certainty and and uh, excitement that we see in British Columbia over uh, the development of mining. So my history goes back a while. I was uh, Deputy Minister of Mining and Energy for the previous Liberal government in British Columbia and am now the my previous role uh, was Deputy Minister of Mining. I was moved to develop and head up the uh, natural gas and LNG development efforts in British Columbia. And since the new government the new uh, has come in since the election in British Columbia, I'm now in charge of all of that, oil and gas and mining and energy. And I can tell you, that's why I'm able to say it's a continuation of the policy environment. And the new premier and the new government in British Columbia is very excited and very supportive about uh, mining and the potential for mining. One of the things we're, we're most excited about telling our story about is the good news evidenced by the folks who are up here with me today that we are have formed and continue to build upon the incredibly good relationships we have with our, our First Nations and Indigenous peoples in BC. And when it comes to the Golden Triangle, the two most important First Nations in that area are up here with us today. So we think it's quite a novel approach rather than the uh, white guy from Victoria sitting up here telling you we have good relationships and we can give you good certainty when you come to BC around the regulatory space and, and your ability to actually explore and develop projects to sit up here in partnership with First Nations and tell that story together. And, and so I think that while not new, is certainly it's new that we're out talking about it and telling the story in that way. And so I think that's the key message for us here. And on that note, you know, I want to go to Chad and Corinne next, you know, bring that First Nations perspective that we so often don't get to hear from. Chad, maybe to start with you, you know, to what Dave was talking about, what's kind of, what's the Taltan government doing? What are you doing with this new alliance that you guys have formed? Like Dave said, uh, it's not, uh, it's not anything new. I've been in my position now for about four years. The Taltan people have three of the 16 active mines in British Columbia in our territory. We have over 30% of the mine exploration in our territory. We have the Red Chris mine in our territory that uh, 
currently has over 30% Taltan employment, and I think that's the highest of anywhere in British Columbia. If you remove jobs like geologists and some of the trades where we don't have Taltan people qualified yet, we're probably close to about 50% of the employment up there for the jobs that our people uh, are properly qualified for. So we've got a track record of working closely with industry and with the province when um, partnership fits and when it's in a location that our, our people can can work with. And we have our own environmental team. We're the mining First Nations in, in British Columbia. And there's a lot of things I can, I can say to that, but... Uh, whether it's with the Liberals or, or with the new NDP, the fact that Dave's sitting here and he was sitting here at panels like this under the previous government just goes to show that it is consistent and our people are, are consistently working hard to make sure that we can benefit as much as possible from the mining industry. And Corinne, I know we'd all love to hear from you as well to, to kind of get the Nishka perspective uh, on mining and on the alliance with the government and industry. I'm a healer. Good morning to you all. It's good to see you all here. And my Nishka name is translated to mean pearly fin. And uh, just to give you a bit of a background on our Nishka government, the Nishka have negotiated a modern-day treaty, and we have a good track record of working with the provincial government and with Canada. We've concluded several resource development projects in the Nass Valley, which is where our villages are located. The Nishka Nation is unique because we have our treaty, and it was ratified in the year 2000. And to travel to the Nass, you have to travel through Highway 113. And it's named so because it took us 113 years to negotiate a treaty. We know that any Opportunities that are provided to our people can be concluded with the certainty because we own 2,000 square kilometers of land and we have further 27 and a half square kilometers of fee simple lands that we own. And the Nishka Nation has um, a constitutionally protected treaty and we have the NAS area and NAS wildlife area, which is a total of 26,000 square kilometers. The unique legal status of the Nishka Nation opens the door for joint economic initiatives and development of natural resources, and it streamlines the mineral exploration and mining development and reduces the potential for disputes and conflicts. So we are the landholder in uh, the NAS area, and uh, we have committed to uh, opening the door for economic opportunities, and on the day that the treaty was ratified on May 11th of 2000, our former president stated that we are open for business, and uh, we have appreciated the relationship that uh, we have with the province. And it, the um, issue of Trans Mountain was raised this morning. We can happily state that the relationship between the Nishka and the province of BC is a positive relationship, uh, respectful in the dialogue that we carry out. And in case it's not completely clear, this is actually, I think, the inaugural day of the new BC Regional Mining Alliance. Is that correct, Dave? That's right. And it's in response to what I said earlier, which is 
an effort to say, well, we all know this, but it appears, you know, the rest of the world does it, that we have this incredibly productive relationship between, you know, companies who are in, interested in operating in the right ways and doing the right things, you know, in the territories of these, these important First Nations and, and, you know, forming an alliance of the companies, the First Nations and government to get out and tell the story. Like companies like Skina and like GT Gold. So moving on to get an industry perspective now from uh, from Walter and Charlie. Walter, why don't I start with you? You know, you're you're part of this new BC mining alliance. Could you speak a bit to that and what that's like? Let me start by saying I, I'm I'm not from BC. I'm a U.S. citizen. And prior to getting involved with Skina, I worked on a, a project in the U.S. For that project, we had an army of lobbyists who worked for us. We had a lot of lawyers. They're constantly in court. To switch over to working in British Columbia is, is night and day. I feel really privileged and fortunate to have the Taltan as our local partners. The Taltan as a nation are, are sophisticated. They understand mining. They have on their staff metallurgists. You know, I, I think back to the local communities we were dealing with in the U.S., uh, we constantly have to uh, try to educate that, you know, here are the benefits of mining. Here are, here are the, the ways we can mitigate risks in mining. Uh, working in in the Golden Triangle, we don't face these kinds of issues. Like we have partners who have a long history; they understand mining and they understand the benefits that can come from. It. And, and I and I would add to that on the on the government side, whenever we've needed help from the ministry, whether it was a, a permit application, we've been able to reach out and uh, get amazing support from the ministry. So, our my experience is incredibly positive. And I want to push you just a little bit further before I go to Charlie. You know, any specific examples maybe of, of relations between First Nations and government that have come up recently? Maybe just discussions or meetings, things, case studies where things have just gone really smoothly for you guys. Well, as a, as a matter of practice, what we, what we try to do is uh, coordinate with uh, Chad and his, his team on our permit applications before they go to the government. We sit down with our, our local partners and, and make sure we're both in agreement of where the direction that we're headed. And then together, our idea is to, to then uh, put those permit applications into government. And that, that practice, I think, is working well for both of us. And Charlie? I'd agree. I'm, I'm a bit more of an on-the-ground kind of guy, so uh, I'm up there. Our, our, uh, our discovery is a brand-new discovery, and it's very close to one of the Taltan villages, Iska. And so we work hand in hand with them. I think half the village works at, on our project on and off. It's actually not quite that much, but uh, it certainly it works to our advantage having the locals working for us. They're right next door. It's easiest to get them there. They like working there because they can get back and forth fairly quickly. It works very well. If you've got the people, local people on your side, it's, it's going to work. As for the government, uh, they've recently added a bunch more uh, people to help with permitting in their Smithers office. So that's really helped us streamline our permitting. Uh, and they've been a help, very helpful that way. And I know that Walter just mentioned, you know, working in the States and how complicated things can be sometimes. Charlie, you've been in the industry for a long time. Have you ever, you know, seen anything quite like this relationship before? Um, well, it's kind of evolved over the years. I've been working up uh, in Northwest BC for, you know, 30 something years. So it has changed uh, over the years, there wasn't so much consultation, but the Taltan have always worked in the industry. They were prospectors that were involved in a lot of the discoveries of well-known deposits up in that neck of the woods. Chad's father is here, for example, and he's an electrician, and he does has done spent many of those years uh, setting up camps and setting up the electrical in camps. 
And so it's always been part of their their heritage. Uh, when I first started working up in that in uh, in Northwest BC, I worked uh, around a mine called Cassiar, which was an asbestos mine. Well, they don't even mine asbestos anymore, and uh, and the Taltan were heavily involved in in that endeavor as well. So it's changed, but it's always been a, a good relationship. Mm-hmm. And on the note of the Taltan in uh, particular, and your your long history with mining and your long relationship with the industry, Chad, maybe you could speak a bit to some of that history that kind of, you know, gives you that unique insight and unique relationship with the industry? Well, you could almost start back, you know, 10,000 years ago. Taltan's pre-contact times were mining obsidian and trading it uh, with our partners to the west, north, east. And our obsidian's actually been found as uh, far south as South America. You know, it's something that these exploration companies often use in their punchlines when they're talking about Taltans, that it's it's somewhat in our blood to be miners. But the reality is we have been mining for thousands of years. You know, when you talk about our, our history, like Charlie said, not only have there been a lot of projects in our territory, but we've been the leading First Nation working outside of our territory in other mining projects like um, like Huckleberry Mine, in the Smithers area where I grew up and Cassiar, which is outside of Taltan territory, but we were, you know, heavily involved in that project as well. You know, like I said before with the statistics, we, we have a mine right now where we are 30% of the, the working force up there. That percentage is growing every day because we're in a jurisdiction like BC in Canada that is steadily evolving and recognizing more and more of the the rights and and titles of First Nations people, so too are the economic benefits. And as the economic benefits grow, that just enables us to better train our people to ensure that we can fulfill all those positions and hopefully eventually become part owners in these mining projects. And it's my job to make sure that we have a thriving economy and healthy communities and mining is a a big part of that. And maybe, uh, you know, Corinne, maybe you could jump in here as well and talk about the Nishka history with mining and kind of give some examples maybe of, of maybe some recent recent interactions you guys have had between industry and government and how that's gone for you guys. We have copper pins that we issue to our friends and our citizens. It, copper is a symbol of wealth in our nation, so we know that uh, we have... Uh, long appreciated copper even more so we appreciate gold so uh, uh, we've had uh, several agreements that have been uh, negotiated with uh, proponents and the recent examples of uh, large-scale projects are uh, the northwest transmission line avanti kitsalt mine seabridge gold predium regional power wind river and TransCanada pipeline, uh, including uh, negotiating an option for capacity. We had been in discussions with Spectra Energy. We um, we have negotiated agreements, but we've also made sure that the provisions of our environmental protection chapter are a primary consideration. So we enter into dialogue and gauge whether or not the project will be beneficial and whether or not there will be consideration of the environmental protections chapter of our treaty. 
there's strong support for resource development in our communities and the infrastructure that can be established or developed within our communities. We have skilled labor. We have uh, expertise in partnerships. We have a longstanding relationship with Aldridge and Rosling, the firm that helps us in our legal work. And we have technical team that assists us with the environmental protections uh, issues that are primary consideration in all of the agreements that we negotiate. We have a legal framework that provides for certainty and efficiency because uh, we follow the same framework and we provide the same information and the structure is the same for the agreements. I know that uh, in the most recent report that we've had from an implementation meeting that we had with one of the agreement holders that we've concluded an arrangement with, we had a report of 35 Nishka people employed in that project. And that's uh, something that we follow up on. We don't provide agreements to proponents for the sake of uh, deriving a financial benefit, although it's an important consideration. We want to make sure that there are opportunities to improve the quality of life of our citizens. I'll leave it at that. Thank you. That's excellent to hear, Corinne. And in there, you mentioned infrastructure. So I want to go back to Dave just briefly, speak kind of about infrastructure in BC, but maybe in the Golden Triangle more specifically. What's there that makes it unique, and how is that going to help bring in more attention to the area? It's uh, evidence of what I said earlier of the long-standing support for mining and mineral development in that area of British Columbia is um, years ago, we embarked upon the project to build the Northwest Trans transmission line. It's now completed and, in fact, uh, was the enabling infrastructure that allowed the Red Chris copper mine to come into existence a few years ago, Chad mentioned. And so that transmission line supports mining as uh, industrial development takers of power. It also supports clean energy projects as uh, suppliers of power and energy. So it's a major asset that we've used to develop that area of the province and, and is good evidence, you know, that we're, we are open for business uh, up in that area. We'd love lots more mines taking power from the Northwest Transmission Line. There's also uh, the road infrastructure is excellent, rail infrastructure, um, and British Columbia has um, several deep water ice-free ports along our coast, two of which are in the direct neighborhood of the, uh, the Golden Triangle. So you don't need to truck your concentrate or rail your concentrate all the way down to the port of Vancouver to get it out. And when you get your products to the port. It's a straight shot across uh, with the lowest shipping time you'll find anywhere to markets in Asia. And I want to go back to Walter and, and to Charlie, you know, once again, to get industry perspective on that infrastructure. What's that doing for you guys? It's a total game changer for us. Two of the assets that we uh, acquired or optioned from Barrick, one was the Snip Mine and the other is the SK Creek Mine. And when those mines operated back in the 1990s, they were diesel powered and uh, the SNP mine was completely isolated. There were no roads going in or, or out of it. Now we've got a road to within 17 kilometers of SNP, and you can drive in or in and out of SK Creek. But more importantly, between SNP and SK Creek, in the last five years, we've had two new run-of-river hydroelectric facilities built at a cost of $1.2 billion. You think about the expense structure on those mines back in the 1990s when they're diesel-powered and you're flying in fuel to now you have $0.06 cents per kilowatt per kilowatt hour electricity 
right next door, that's that's a huge improvement. Definitely. And Charlie? Yeah, that uh, that definitely is a is a big big change for us uh, us up at GT. We're right next to Iskit. That's the northern limit of the Northwest Transmission Line. I worked at Bruce Jack for five five years for for Predium, and they had to to build like an eighty million dollar transmission line to come from the Stewart area. So now at GT, we're right close to uh, to the northern limit there of the Northwest Transmission Line. So it is. A huge, huge advantage for for a new discovery to have that uh, that power uh, right close by. It must just make everything way easier. Well, it should. I think another thing that's very interesting is, uh, you know, we're probably if if anybody's pressuring us in terms of building a road, it's probably the Teltan because they have a t- they have their own Teltan Nation Development Corp and uh, a bunch of very experienced heavy equipment oper- operators. They have the equipment. And uh, they would really like to see us, see them building a road for us. We're not necessarily at that stage, but uh, the Taltan First Nation has this development arm. They have some very active uh, people in that uh, development corporation, and they are really anxious to get that kind of work and and do that work for us. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to kind of take a bit of a broader perspective on, on BC and Vancouver in terms of, you know, a global hub for mineral exploration and development. What do you think the state of it is now versus, say, maybe 10 years ago? Yeah, I can start. Um, I think it's an interesting evolution since the days of, we you know, the Vancouver Stock Exchange, of course. Um, things are different than they were then. But the ability, I mean, there's still, by anybody's guess, about a thousand mining companies headquartered in uh, in Vancouver, of all shapes, sizes, and, and capabilities, uh, the uh, investment climate there is still positive. The ability to raise money is still there. The entrepreneurship is still there. The companies are there. Um, they work all over the world, mm-hmm. of course, from from that nexus. And so we're very proud of that industry. And I can tell you, as I said earlier, it's there's there's a bit of an awakening, I would say, going on in the government of British Columbia. Like, how do we nurture that? And, and that's why we're here. I mean, for us, as you said it, it's, it's the first time we're trying something like this on. And the reason we're here, the reason I'm here is we're really attempting to answer that question. How, how do we, you know, reinvigorate that? that industry and, the, and and those companies and that capability and what can we do as the government to be helpful mm-hmm. and, and I think in both respects you know we, we love having companies in BC that operate all over the world but we're especially interested in how do we get them to work in BC of course and Charlie maybe you could speak a little bit about what makes BC so uh, attractive in that evolution well you know I've, I've worked a lot a uh, lot in Northwest BC but I've also worked a lot around the world in fact last month I was in Ethiopia helping some some guys from BC who cut their teeth in the Golden Triangle, you know, get get a private company established and started up in Ethiopia. So, you know, what one of the ways you keep that going, and one one of the ways you keep that nexus in Vancouver, and you even involve the Teltan, is to have that expertise in your backyard. So you have a few minds, you allow that to grow organically, and then. The people that have those skills can transport those skills, just like Chad said. They, Teltan, were selling their uh, obsidian world, you know, pretty much worldwide, and you have to nurture that just by doing it. You get the skills and the expertise, and then you have the young people that go out and they they make it happen, and uh, that's what's still happening today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a fantastic thing, I think. Yeah. I just add one other thing that that's really important for an exploration company is the. Uh, 
the tax incentives. There's the BC super flow through tax credits. So in essence, for us as an exploration company, every time we raise money, we're usually able to get about a 30% bump on the capital that we raise because of these tax incentives. So, uh, you know, from my perspective, that makes British Columbia an incredibly attractive place to do exploration when you can get 30% more out of your dollars than if you were to go to some other country that doesn't have that sort of uh, favorable tax jurisdiction. Definitely, definitely. And I think we have about 10 minutes left, so I'd like to give, you know, Walter and Charlie kind of an opportunity to talk about some of your key exploration activities that are going on in the Golden Triangle right now. Maybe Walter would like to, to get things going. Yeah, we're, uh, we're drilling right now on the old uh, SNP mine and hoping to put together a, a resource that's sizable enough to justify reopening that. I think the last time I was meeting with the, the Taltan Central Government, I think that three of the, uh, of the chiefs had, had relatives who had either worked at SK or SNP. I think that's right, Chad. Um, every leader has many relatives that work <laughs> at every project in Taltan. My father's worked at basically every project since uh, the beginning of time. I think, so. <laughs> Just getting that. Yeah, so it, it's, it's, uh, it's exciting and, and it's a lot of fun. And uh, Charlie? We're a new discovery, so we don't have infrastructure that is livable year-round uh, up at site. Uh, it's only 10K from the road, but it's, uh, you know, it's still a long walk, and we don't have any permanent buildings or anything like that. So we're just gearing up for our second season of drilling. We've let all the contracts, we've raised all the money, and you know, we have more or less 8 or $9, 10000000 million dollars uh, to drill a lot up at, uh, up at our Saddle Gold Discovery. So that's going to be our focus. We've let all the contracts. Uh, we've got some new Taltan partners as well as some of our old Taltan partners, and uh, we're ready to go. Good stuff. I'd like to give the floor a chance now for any questions. We have quite an experienced group of guys up here. If anyone wants to, uh, to field a question, just raise your hand. The tax credit is for British Columbia <laughs> residents to pay tax. So being from Alberta, I wouldn't benefit. The, uh, the system for, for financing uh, exploration is, has become more sophisticated so that we are able to work with groups like Pear Tree and uh, facilitate a way for people in BC who want to get the tax credits can get them, while investors who might be based in London can take advantage of supporting. It's a, it's a complicated uh, uh, process, but in essence... We take a foreign investor and they put money in the company, but we are able to sell the tax credits to local people. And that's how we get the bump. And the government has no issue with that. We, we very much support the point of the credits is to encourage the, the exploration. And so whatever works. Um, the one thing I would add, um, and you made me think of it when you're asking the question about the, you know, the developments is, uh, the other thing that we're very proud of in British Columbia is our public geoscience and our geoscience generally. So the, the one thing that a lot of people also don't understand about British Columbia is we have a, a geological survey branch that belongs to my ministry, as every province in Canada has. So that's what I call the public geoscience that you would normally expect, which is well-developed as, as people would expect in a jurisdiction like British Columbia. The other thing we have, which is quite unique in British Columbia, is we fund an organization called Geoscience BC. And Geoscience BC is a private organization that does geoscience. 
And they are very innovative, very active, working very actively with First Nations around the province. Um, and and I, I, you know, I don't have time to go into it, but uh, if you just Google it, it's it's a very innovative organization that is funded by the the, the government through grants uh, and and ultimately publishes geoscience that they produce for the consumption of um, explorers and people who might be interested in our geology. And one more time, what's the name of that organization? Just so people Geoscience can... BC. Geoscience BC. Wonderful. Do we have any other questions? I think we have about a couple minutes left. Thank you very much indeed. Forgive me if I'm repeating scuttlebutt. I did hear that First Nations had claims over the territory of BC that amounted to more than 100% of the land area of BC. If that's true, could I ask the panel to react to it, um, the statistic itself? It suggests to me that there is significant scope for friction between First Nations uh, over the issue of land. So maybe I'll start, and then these folks obviously will have the authoritative word on that. From the province's perspective, I think the statistic is true. There's lots of overlapping uh, interjurisdictional claims. One of the things I like to talk about, though, is... British Columbia used to think it was a huge disadvantage to have unsettled land claims. So if you look at Canada and the map of Canada, it's almost all covered by historic treaties going back to the turn of the century, last century. And they're very historic treaties and they do cover almost all of Canada. They stopped kind of when they got to the BC border. We talked and you heard the NISCA talk about a modern day treaty, which is very different than those historic treaties. But the reason I say it used to be considered a disadvantage is those treaties were used to, quite frankly, override a lot of the interests and wishes of First Nations, saying, well, we have a treaty, therefore we can go on the land and and do what we like. In BC, we've had to work a lot harder for a lot longer time. And what was initially what I would have, you know, was... You know, a lot of people believe was a disadvantage. I believe is is it actually become a huge advantage for us, and it's one of the reasons we're able to sit here today is because we you know we haven't had those historic treaties. We've had to genuinely go out, and and it's been a long process in the courts of saying no. And you know what? Actually, First Nations do have rights, and they do have expectations of titles on the land, and so on. And so, taking all of that encouragement finger quotes that was provided by the courts historically we've worked hard over a long long time to develop positive relationships and to to genuinely um, share those interests and british columbia has been doing uh, revenue sharing so we take the royalties we collect and we share those back with first nations um, as one example of, of what we're talking about again pretty unique in canada certainly for the amount of time we've been doing it and so you know there's other examples i could give you but i'll actually let let these folks answer for themselves. Corinne, I think you wanted to uh, you wanted to jump in there. Yes, we in settling our land claims or treaty, we were able to receive approximately seven percent of the former land base that uh, we historically had ties to. We agreed to that. Uh, it was a very difficult decision, and I fulfilled the obligations as the referendum commissioner. So we had to put it to a referendum. Uh, for our people to consider. Once our people passed the referendum, then it went on to the provincial government and then was ratified uh, by the federal government. When we decided on that 7% of the former land base, uh, it was to receive the certainty of ownership. But we do have management responsibilities for the greater wildlife area of the NAS area uh, that we had uh, originally owned. 
and there are provisions in our treaty to reacquire or purchase back the land that we once held. And we have in that greater wildlife area lands that we own in fee simple in strategic locations. We aren't claiming the whole of BC. We settled on what we did. Uh, it was a strategic decision, and it was a very difficult decision. And to move forward from where we were, we have undertaken decisions such as uh, the memorandum of an, uh, understanding that we have with our neighbors to the north, the Taltan, so that we could work potentially on projects together strategically so that we aren't at odds with each other, that we are working together to gain agreements uh, that will benefit our First Nations as well as uh, to work with our provincial government and move forward as a people. Thank you. And Chad, I'd like to give you an opportunity as well to uh, speak to that question. Yeah, thank you for the question. It's, a, it's an excellent question. It's a question that every prudent investor should ask when they're thinking about investing money into, uh, into British Columbia. Our territory is definitely um, something that our people you know, take very seriously, and we, we definitely claim Taltan rights and title to our entire territory. So right now in the province, you have this situation where the provincial government recognizes the, uh, the ambiguity with jurisdiction. They recognize the challenges that it creates. Where we are right now in British Columbia and Canadian history is that it makes the most sense for governments, industry, to uh, work closely with First Nations and to try and negotiate um, mutually beneficial agreements. We certainly have that in our territory when it comes to mining, when it comes to logging. We have some run-of-the-river projects. At the same time, it's very important to uh, ensure that the First Nation that you're dealing with has good internal policies because oftentimes you may see people claiming that they have First Nations on side, and then later on down the road, the First Nations will protest or you'll have different subgroups um, saying other things in the media and stuff like that. I can only speak for my nation, and I can tell you that we have very tight, thorough, interconsultation processes in place so that when we have the opportunity to say yes or no to a particular project. We meet with our people throughout the province, throughout other provinces, wherever they are. We have very good relationships with uh, all Taltan governments uh, internally, and we put um, the opportunities to a ratification vote by our people. So when you talk about certainty, you can't get much more certainty than that when all of your governments are signing off on agreements and your collective nation is uh, going to a ratification vote. It's an excellent question, and I can tell you that when it comes to investing in Taltan territory, it's uh, extremely important that the companies have a good relationship uh, with us and follow our internal policies. Right now, we, we're certainly in a good place with these particular companies. Things are moving along nicely with, with the province and getting better and better in Taltan territory. You know, it's so often that First Nations communities aren't really given a seat at the table or a voice, and that's part of why it's such an honor to have Chad and Corinne here today. 
And on that note, it's, it's all smiling to give them the last word at the table today. Uh, that's it for the BC panel. Can we get a big round of applause for our five uh, panelists? Charlie, Chad, Dave, Corinne, and Walter. Thanks, guys. And that is our show for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. See you next week. Bye-bye.